we're going to look at the second part in our series on Genesis this week, um, looking at Genesis 2, which kind of fits nicely with the second part. I wanted to make a quick, a quick confession to you, because I think it's important. Maybe it's not, but I think it's important. Um, we, we, had a, we had a family emergency last week, and on the Saturday when I'd spent a lot of time to um, prepare for my sermon last week, um, we ended up not being at home. Um, and so when I got home late at night, I had all of my notes and everything, and I was like, how am I going to put this together for tomorrow? Who, who can I look to to help me order this? And so my sermon last week, a lot of it was really, I got a lot of help from, have you ever heard of Tim Mackey from the Bible Project? So I always think it's important to give like um, credit where credit is due. So, um, and I think I alluded to it last week, but I just want you to know that um, he says it much better than I do. So if you want to go find out more about Genesis 1, check Tim out. Today you're getting all me. So, um, um, so you can tell me later what you think, uh, gauge it uh, against last week. But this morning we're, we're going to continue. Let's pray first before we do that and then we'll, we'll get into it. Lord, we love your words. And we need your word to guide us and to lead us, and to instruct us, and to teach us. And most of all, we need, as we open the scriptures today, to be led to you, Jesus. So, as we speak about the very beginnings of things, I pray that we would see you, your heart, and your character, and your work in the middle of it. Through the authority, not of my voice, the authority which is in the words in these pages, enlivened by the Spirit, would you lead us to yourself and transform us this morning? And we pray this in your name. Amen. So we looked at Genesis 1 last week, and we were looking at this idea that God created the world, big idea, um, and that what God did was he was actually bringing order and function and purpose out of chaos and disorder by the presence of the Spirit and by the power of His Word. And so in Genesis 1, God forms the world in such a way that it becomes a habitat where life can flourish, the perfect place for people. And at the pinnacle of His creation, God creates humans, both male and female, in His image, and they are His ruling representatives within the creation. Um, And we saw at the end that when God has finished his work, it's almost as if he, um, he sits down on a throne and fills creation with his presence and his holiness. And so at the end of the narrative of Genesis 1, you get this picture of a world ordered and filled with life and with goodness and with holy presence of God who is the king appointing humans and giving them authority to rule over the creation of the world is almost like a temple where God and humanity dwell together in holy and restful purpose. So it can strike us as a bit odd when we find in Genesis 2 that there's another creation account, a second creation account. Um, But it doesn't need to be difficult if we keep in mind some of the things that we discussed last week, um, that Genesis is often not concerned with the kind of questions that we want to ask it. So we want to ask Genesis questions about how and when. So we're very interested in material process. But Genesis is more interested in talking about questions like who and why. 
Genesis is a theological narrative of historical events and people, and it's not always so concerned with this idea of, uh, of material things, of process, but with the vital importance and meaning of these events that took place. And so in Genesis 2, we're get, we are going to get a kind of another look at the creation account, but Genesis 2 is asking this question. This is a question I want us to keep in mind as we go through this morning. The question is, what does it mean? In this world that God has created, what does it mean for humanity to live there? What does it mean for humanity to live in the world that God has created as God intended? And the way that Genesis 2 is going to do this, is going to answer this question, is by revisiting the creation of humans um, from a perspective that's a slightly different look at it from Genesis 1. So in Genesis 1, it's very much a view from above. Okay, You've got God hovering over the creation and speaking things into existence. Um, and in Genesis 2, it's very much down in the dirt, in the earth. It's a view from below. In Genesis 1, you've got the world is ordered for the benefit of humans, so everything is put there so that humans can enjoy the world, and they're kind of the pinnacle of the creation. But in Genesis 2, you find more about um, what it means for humans to work for the benefit of the world. In Genesis 1, it's about the authority that God gives to humans. Genesis 2 is about the responsibility that humans have um, over the creation. Genesis 1 is about humans ruling and reigning as God's representatives. And Genesis 2 is about humans tending and serving the creation as God's representatives. That all right? Win me so far? So don't freak out that there's a second creation narrative. It's just that the, the author wants to show us a different perspective on what it means to be humans in God's world. So we're going to read it, uh, at least the first part of it, and I want you to keep your eye out for the ways in which this might be different. Okay, um, so we'll start Genesis 2, verse 4. It's actually about halfway through verse 4. Um, and some of, your, some of your Bibles, it might actually have a little heading that says something like, another account of the creation or the creation of humans. It says this, In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no vegetation of, of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground. But a stream would rise from the ground and, waters, and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Okay, is there anything that you notice that's slightly different about that version than the version that we read last week? It's not a trick question. If you remember the way things happened in the first account. Alistair, don't whisper, say it out loud. Okay, so in Genesis 1 account, you've got um, the vegetation is, um, is all there. The, the, God causes the, the plants to grow up out of the ground, and humans are kind of last in the order. But in this one here, you've got, um, there's no, no vegetation yet, right? And then humans are made first. So um, we can freak out about this. <laughs> and people get really worked up about the fact that the Genesis 2 account can read differently from the Genesis 1. Um, and this is one of those points. But it's only a concern if we don't understand the emphasis of this type of Hebrew literature. So he, this kind of literature is not 
like I've said earlier, it's not really obsessed with strict chronologies and the details of processes. That's not the point. The point is how are things ordered and what are the purpose that things are given and what is the meaning that's given to that purpose. And so it's not, um, the question's not what process, by what process were the plants and humans made, but what does it mean for humans to live in this world? And so in Genesis 1, the plants are commanded by God to come out of the ground before he makes humans, and here we have them um, coming um, after. And also there's no rain yet in this. So um, this is a difference that's so glaring that the writer cannot have been unaware of it. It's not like they forgot kind of five minutes later. Well, I don't know how long it takes to, you know, well, we can get into how things are put together. But it's, you would think that you would spot that. You wouldn't just make that much of an error. So... There must be a reason. It must be a deliberate move to reveal something about human function and purpose. And if we look a bit closer, you'll see it. So um, what kind of plants and vegetation are they? They spring up. Of the field. Okay. So what are fields for? Mm -hmm. Crops. So... Um, this is talking about agriculture and farming. This is a world yet where humans have not yet brought order to the plant and made it useful for life. God's provided what's there, but they haven't gotten to work yet. And that's the point. And the thing about rain as well, because what, what are farmers very concerned with? Rain coming and growing the crops. So... Um, so the land has not yet been brought to its full potential of providing the abundance of food that's required because there's no one yet there to work or serve the land. It's a pretty obvious point. And so God creates humans to join him in the work of harnessing the goodness of all that he has created. And so this account is going to emphasize this relationship between God and humanity. And um, actually in the Hebrew, I'm going to make you do Hebrew again this morning, there's a clear indication um, of this relationship, which is actually obscured by our English translations. So if we look at um, uh, verse 11 um, in, in Genesis 1, the word that's used for God is Elohim. Say that with me. Elohim. Good, you can speak Hebrew. Um, Elohim is a general term for God, and it's a term that emphasizes God's transcendence and his power. Um, it's a word that's used here to refer to God as the creator, who's a powerful creator over all things. But in Genesis 2, we get a name shift. In Genesis 2, God is called Yahweh Elohim. Say that with me. Yahweh Elohim. Great. Um, our English translations render it as Lord God, which kind of, you don't really get the impact of it. Um, but what's Yahweh? Do you know? God's name. Yeah, it's the personal name of God. So now what we have in Genesis 1, there's God over all creation, speaking from and working from above. But in Genesis 2, we have the personal God, who is still powerful, still the creator God, but the God who's coming close to know us um, and enter into relationship with us. And in Genesis 1, God speaks humans into existence. But in Genesis 2, God is going to come down into the dirt and get his hands dirty. Verse 7, literally, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Um, what do you, when you read that, what do you think of? 
What, what images come in your mind? No whisper. Share with the rest of the class. <laughs> What's that? Sepia. So a sepia. It's very long ago. It's in sepia tones, right? They only had those. Oh, it's in sepia, like an old photo. CPR. Oh, interesting. Yeah, breath of life. Yeah. That's interesting, you know, because the, the, the Hebrew word for spirit, we have three words, wind, breath, and spirit. In Hebrew, it's one, it's one word, ruach, for all. So when you breathe, that's your ruach. And God has a ruach. The Spirit of God, and also you have a Ruach, which is your spirit, and all these ideas, and the wind, when the wind blows, that's Ruach blowing. So that's an interesting point. Yeah, okay, CPR. Any other kind of images that come to mind when you read that? Say again? Pottery. Yeah, like, um, like clay, like somebody molding something from clay. Except, what does it say that the, humans are, the human is made from? Dust. You ever tried to make something with dust? You ever tried like sweeping your house and trying to get a pile of dust together and it just kind of like <laughs> goes off out of the way? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, we're going to, let me, let me, well actually, yeah, I'll, I'll say it, I'll say it now, yeah. Yahweh forms humans from the dust of the ground. Um, and again, remember, this verse is not about process. It's about who. Not about the how, but about the who. It's about who we are as humans. So are there any other Bible verses you can think of that talk about dust? Yeah, so we say that, don't we? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So Genesis 3 is about to, God's about to say in the next uh, chapter, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Um, Psalm 103 says, for he knows how we are made, he remembers that we are dust. First Corinthians 15, Paul is making a comparison between um, Jesus, who's the new creation, and the old creation, and he says, the first human was from the earth, made from dust. The second human is from heaven. So what is dust? You said it. What does dust conjure up images of? It's mortality. Okay? So Genesis 2 is presenting humans as made from the dust. Humans are not immortal like gods. They are mortal. And although they've been given a special place in God's creation, we are most definitely created beings. So there's a thing here. It's like try, we know you're special, Try not to get too big-headed about it. Remember where you come from. We have a special relationship both to God and also to the creation. And I want to go back and make a point here. Um, the word, can we skip back a few slides, Ash? Sorry, back to um, verse 7. Uh, uh, yes, there we go. Uh, no, next, uh, yes, that one's fine. Let's do that. Okay, um, the word Adam isn't, initially a name. Adam is a Hebrew word and it means human. So when you read it in Genesis 2, we're not talking about a, a man named Adam yet. That will come in chapter 4. And we are talking about an individual human, but the term that's being used for this human is just the human. 
Now, our translations translate it as man because we have that thing about like, um, oh, for the good of all man or for all mankind. And when we use that term, we generally mean everybody. Um, and that's what's happening here. So Adam means um, human and ha means the. So it's literally saying, then Yahweh Elohim formed the human. Say ha-adam. Uh, you've got to get the wee stop there. Ha-adam. Yeah, that's good. And there's a wee word play here, because guess what the word for ground is? Adama. Ha-adama. So ha-adam is formed from ha-adama. Okay? So from the ground comes, or from the earth comes the earthling. This is what's uh, being spoken about here. Okay? Um, is that all right? That's not freaking anybody out. Um, good. It's just remind us that we are made from the earth. And then finally, your CPR comment, ladies in the back. Um, we may be mortal, but we're filled with the Ruach of God. And the Spirit or Ruach makes us living beings. And it is the Spirit that identifies us as made in God's image. And here's what Yahweh is doing. He is sharing his life with us by breathing into us. That's what we do with CPR, right? We're loaning someone our breath so that they can come to life. And Yahweh is sharing his life with humans, with humanity, this human that he's made, and empowering him for the work that he's called him to do. Um, And so this is the first of three things that Genesis 2 wants to tell us about what it means to live in God's world. It's that we are there um, to tend what he has provided for us. Verse 8 says, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the human whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the human and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. Okay, what does that make God? A gardener. God plants a garden and he puts the humans in the garden. And he, he's put them there, or puts the human in the garden um, as his image to represent him and partner with him to till and to keep the garden. Um, the Hebrew word for till is la'avada. It means to cultivate. And the root word of that is avad, which means to work or to serve. And that root word avad is going to pop up later in the scriptures and it describes the work that the priests do in the temple. They work and they serve. So here is the human put in the heart of God's temple of earth in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. God gives us this task. And so you see here it's quite different. Um, to till and to keep have different connotations than in Genesis 1, which is to have dominion and subdue. That feels like quite a power thing, like we're going to take over the earth and we're going to subdue it. But Genesis 2 says that we are to serve and to keep it. So there's a responsibility not just to have power over the land, but to care for the environment in a way that reflects God's goodness. I was confessing to, Helen, uh, to Heather earlier that I didn't bring my plastic cup today. I'm using these paper cups. And I said, what a hypocrite, because I'm about to talk a little bit about how we are responsible for the world that God has given us. And if we only had a notion, if the only notion we had was a notion from Genesis 1 that we are to... Um, to have dominion over and to subdue the earth, we might not be bothered about stuff like that. We might just think that we could do whatever we wanted to with the creation. And humans have acted in that way uh, for a lot. Um, 
but while Genesis 1 says the land is made for our benefit, Genesis 2 says that we also have a responsibility to tend the creation and care for the creation that God has given us. Why? So that it can be brought to its full purpose and potential so the land can sustain life. Our vocation as humans who have been put in the garden by the gardener and had the breath of life breathed into us is to care for and to tend the garden in a way that cultivates life in the world that God has given us. We are to be life givers, life cultivators. And that's the first thing that Genesis 2 is telling us about who we are as humans. We are to be those who cultivate life in the world in which we live. And as the gardener, the one from whom true life comes, God is the one who can direct us in this job, this vocation as cultivators of life. Um, But the text tells us that there are two particular plants that we need to pay attention to. Remember those? Yeah. Tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And these trees are going to reveal to us the second part of what it means to live in the world God has created. Verse 9. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God commanded the human, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Um, The story of Genesis is often presented popularly as this, uh, this story about what God tells us that we can't do. It's all about the prohibitions that God puts on humanity. Um, But actually, the Genesis story is a beautiful story of permission and of trust. God gives humans the world. He asks them to partner with him as his life-giving representatives and to enjoy all that he's created. He provides the human with food and says he can eat whatever he likes with one caveat, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is more than just an opportunity for humans to exercise free will. It's a question about where will the human look to for wisdom and how to live. Will the human look to God, the creator, as the one who can show him what it means to thrive in the world that God's created? Or will the human try to establish his own kind of wisdom and decide what is good and bad for himself? And every time I say human, I mean us Two, what has God repeatedly said about the world so far? What does God say about the world? Genesis 1, we've been reading it. He says that it is good. Right. And so the human already knows what good is. God's made it good. And he said that it is good. So eating the fruit of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil wouldn't give the human a knowledge of good. He already knows what's good. It would add to the human's knowledge of good with the knowledge of evil. It's a tree of knowledge, both good and evil. And by the act of eating from the tree, the human would be stepping outside of God's definition of good and trying to decide between good and evil without the guiding wisdom of God. And so the second thing about what it means to live in the world God has created is to look to God as a source of wisdom, life, and goodness. And then, as if to show this, the very next thing that God does is he labels something not good. In verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good that the human should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. 
So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the human to see what he would call them. And whatever the human called every living creature, that was its name. The human gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the human, there was not found a helper as his partner. Okay, I want you to think for a minute, just for a second. Do you think that God thinks that the animals would make good partners for the human? You can say it, it's okay. No? Anybody think yes? You think, <laughs> you think you might have. Well, maybe that's why we have cats and dogs and that kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, God is not sitting there going, I nah, wonder if a rhinoceros would do. wonder if a giraffe would do. Okay, that's kind of silly, but it makes a point. This is not God kind of muddling his way along, trying to say, what can I do for this human to make him feel better? It's an exercise that reveals a couple of things. One, that humans are not the same as the animals. Humans are not beasts. We're not mere creatures. And the second thing it reveals is that the goodness, or the, the not goodness of being alone can only, only be resolved by God. And it can only be resolved by God bringing about something good. So God is the one who brings about the goodness of partnership um, and of, of, some, of a helper that's there to bless the human. Um, the human's been given the choice to trust in God's wisdom about what is God and not good, good, what is good and not good. And God's about to demonstrate what this wisdom looks like. So up until now, at this point in the story, the Adam has had a relationship with God, and the Adam has had a relationship established with the creation and with the animals. But God knows that the human needs a relationship with someone who is his peer, a helper as his partner. And I guess in this whole thing this morning, this is maybe the part that I want us to hear most. Because sadly, um, this passage has been used mostly by men um, to subjugate women and to treat them as subservient to men. So we're about to get the creation of the woman. And the key verse that's often appealed to is verse 18. It says, The Lord God said, It's not that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. And this word helper has brought with it connotations of someone who's a subordinate or a sidekick. So the man is the main one. And the woman's brought along to help him do his thing. And it's been taught like that for many, many years and is still taught like that in many places um, across the world now. But the Hebrew word for helper is the word ezer. And ezer does not mean subordinate. Ezer means necessary and powerful assistance. Marge Moshko says that Ezer is used 21 times in the Hebrew Bible. And apart from the two times it's used in Genesis 2, Ezer is used three times in the context of people helping or failing to help in a life-threatening situation. So it's quite often used to talk about um, military forces that come in to help. Um, uh, it's used um, 16 times in reference to God 
as a helper. So it cannot mean subordinate. It's often used to mean an ally. And in Genesis 2, ezer, or helper, as we translate it, is combined with another word, kenegdo. And the NRSV that we're reading from today translates kenegdo as partner, but some of your translations might say as um, God was going to make a suitable helper for the man. Um, Kenegdo means facing or opposite. So when you combine that with the word ezer, what God is talking about is creating for the human a facing power or an opposite strength. That's what it means. It does not mean subordinate wife who comes along for the ride. And what God is going to create from the human is a partnership of mutual help. From this one human, God will make man and woman who will be suitable helpers for one another. Many people say that while both male and female are made equally in the image of God, the female's function is to serve the man. And when they do this, they fundamentally misrepresent the scriptures and teach um, what they're actually teaching is what happens after the fall. And we'll get to that next week, the subordination of women. But it's a serious thing to ascribe the sin of the fall to God's original intention. So women, I want you to hear me today. If you've ever been subject to that teaching or that's um, been imposed upon you, Genesis does not teach that you are subservient to men or that men have a higher position in God's created order than you or that men are somehow a more complete version of the image of God and that without a man, you are not the full image of God in yourself. Is that okay? Let's watch what God does. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the human and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the human, he made into a woman and brought her to the human. Oh God, you guys are going to get so sick of me. Another quick bit of Hebrew. Where are your, where are your ribs? On your side. Um, the Hebrew word that we translate as rib, it's kind of a, a hangover from the King James Version. It's selah, it means side. So the woman is not formed from the human's head, else you might think that she is superior or above him. She's not formed from the human's feet, else you might think that she is lower than him. She is formed from his side. That's why when we talk about our spouses, we often say our other, other half. <laughs> You're right about the Hebrew, wrong about the English. Uh, <laughs> other half, right? We talk about other half, yeah. That's still a hangover in our, in, our, in our language. So this human is separated, and one side is the male, and the other is the female. And this language of side, and we've got, already got this language of opposing power, right, or facing strength, and now we've got this language of side and side. Um, this language shows that there's a mutuality and an equality between them. And then there's a poem, the first proper poem in the Bible in verse 23. The human said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. And so the poem expresses a oneness and an equality. Flesh and bone is a term of kinship, of belonging to one another, of family. 
She is like him, and he is like her. Woman is not a different kind of creature or a lesser kind of creature. They belong to one another. And there's also a language change here, if you didn't spot it. Um, now, instead of the term human, we now have the term woman and man. Woman is Isha, and man is Ish. So even in the language that we used to talk about them, they belong to one another, the Ish and the Isha. Humanity now consists of male and female who are to live in a mutual allyship with one another, to support one another. And this is the third way that humans are to live in the world. God has created, um, we are to care for each other, we are to serve one another, we are to love one another. And Genesis 2 puts this in the context of marriage. Verse 24, therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And there's an odd thing here because in Israelite culture, the man did not leave his house to go and be with his wife's family. The wife left her house to go and be with the man's family. That was the expectation. And it doesn't say, therefore, a woman leaves her father and mother and clings to her husband. <laughs> this is a really subversive way of putting it, especially in Israelite culture. It's a reminder to husbands that they are in need of the strength and support that comes from clinging to their wives. And that's a reminder to men that we also are dependent on women as much as women are dependent on men because that is the way that God has created us to be. This is talking about how husbands would transfer their dependence on their parents to their wives who now become a source of strength for them just as if they were to become a source of strength to their wives. Also, that doesn't mean that if you're not married that you are not a source of strength or cannot participate in this partnership between men and women with mutual respect and equality and love for one another. It also does not mean that if you're not married or don't have a husband or wife that you are somehow less than the image of God. You are the image of God as you are. And you are loved by him. And you are valuable. And you have as much of a role in God's plan as anyone else. That's another thing that's been taught to people for many, many years. Um, that unless you're married, you don't have as, as much value. And that's just not true. Genesis 2 tells us what it means to live. I'm wrapping up here. To, li to live in the world God created as God attended. One. We have a vocation and a job and a calling to tend to and to care for the world so that it becomes a place where life is sustained and where life can flourish. And this carries with it a sense of serving. The way God intends his representative humans to have dominion and to subdue the earth is to be those who serve and care so that the benefits of the good world that he has created can be enjoyed by all. Two, we're to look to God as a source of wisdom. And it's in obedience to him that we discover the fullness of life. And it's when we separate ourselves from him that we learn about the consequences of evil. And we'll get to that next week. Three, we are to live in relationships of equality and mutuality and partnership. Loving one another. Acting as each other's allies. And supporting one another in the work that God has called us to do. We are not to seek to dominate, subdue, or exert, or lord over one another. 
but to work alongside each other. But as we're going to see next week, in Genesis 3, sin is going to cause these first humans to reject God's wisdom, to replace equality between men and women with harmful hierarchy, and to have their role as cultivators of life replaced with pain and with hardship. And that's the world that you or I live in. We don't live in this world. We live in the world that's a consequence of that rebellion. But God, in his goodness, has worked through the story of human rebellion and sin to bring about a way for us to return to his original intention for us. He sent his son Jesus, God in human form, the image of the invisible God to restore us. Jesus lived up to the vocation of all humanity because wherever Jesus went, he brought and he cultivated life. Not just kind of temporal life through the miracles of provision and healing that he did, but a different kind of life, an eternal kind of life that he gave to people. Jesus spoke words of life that restored and healed the brokenness within people and brought about new life in them so that they could become life givers. And Jesus cultivated this life not through domination, but through service. He tended to and he cared for everyone that he came across. And Jesus did all this in the wisdom of God. He did everything in line with his Father. And he lived out of the deep trust in the goodness of his Father. And this is how he fulfilled our calling to seek the wisdom of God above our own and to trust in God's definition of what is good. And Jesus even said that, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And finally, Jesus taught us once again how to love one another, to treat people with dignity, not to lord it over one another, but to provide one another with help, to strengthen one another when we're weak, and to represent the God who gives of himself by becoming servants who wash one another's feet. Jesus taught us that to be a helper is not to be weak, but it's to exhibit the kind of strength that God does. He is the ultimate is there. He is the ultimate helper. And in becoming human like us, Jesus became our Ezer Kenegdo, our facing strength and our ally. And the story of men and women begins in a garden, but it will also end in a garden when in Revelation, God renews the earth. And because of Jesus, God will restore humanity to their place as those who rule and reign with God over his creation his new creation. And is it any wonder then that on the morning of his resurrection, when Jesus had become the firstborn of the new creation, the new kind of human, that Mary mistakes him for what? A gardener. Jesus is the God who brought humanity into existence. As a divine gardener who provided us with a garden in which to live out our calling, And when we lost our way, he came and entered the creation to be with us as one of us, to show us the way back to the place where God and humans can live together in love and goodness and joy.